155. I think this is episode 155. August 8th, 2020, 9.57 a.m. I don't have the Rona. That's what I was talking about the last episode. Got tested twice now for work. I don't have it. So part of me is happy that I don't have it. Well, I mean, a lot of me is happy that I don't have it. But then the other part of me is like, I got my test yesterday. And I was like, I don't have the Rona. And I was like, yes. Then I was like, I still feel like dog shit though. And I, was like, <laughs> I woke up today and I was like, for some reason, like expected that because I didn't have it. It was just, I'm no longer allowed to feel bad. And I woke up this morning and was yeah. like, oh, like, I literally did like a Wolf yeah, of Wall Street, like hour shower, like steam shower. It was just like draining my face. But yeah. I think people forget you can still get sick and not have Corona. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there, are a, there are a shitload of other illnesses that we've had our whole lives that yeah. you know, make you feel bad. And, you yeah. Know, you can still get those. Yeah. I think that, I think that physician that uh, Rogan had an epidemiologist on or like a virologist or someone right when Corona was getting going. And the guy was you know, super brilliant guy, super just, yeah, apolitical, intelligent, was just very soft-spoken. But he goes, people forget that um, none of the other diseases, it's my alarm, none of the other diseases yeah. went on vacation. Time for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> none of the other, he's like, none of the other diseases went on vacation. He was like, yeah, pneumonia. Exactly, right? He's like, it didn't, they didn't just like, Corona came in and then, you know, bump, bump, they bump fists and tapped out. They're like, all right, bud, you got this round, like. Everything else is still going. Everything else yeah. is still going. And yeah, one of one of the guys at work had strep throat this week. You know, he, yeah. he, of course he. They all thought he had coronavirus. Yeah, and he's like, well, you know, my my entire throat is full of white shit. And, yeah, you know, usually what you get when you have strep throat, why yeah. don't you test for that? Yeah, <laughs> you know? not a no, man. Oh yeah, Corona. Put him up against throat. the wall. <laughs> like, all right, bud. Great. Sorry. Yeah. So. Yeah. On that on that happy note, Colonel Tyler Morton. PhD author of From Kites to Cold War. So, whoo! Oh, nice. I brought a copy this time. Nice. I'll, I'll bring out my I'll bring out my Kindle copy. Can I be part of the club? Can I? I want to. I don't know. Can you? Ah, damn it. Well, it, it's. Oh yeah, you can totally see that. <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> Fuck you! Wait, 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 wait. There we go. It's uh, you can kind of. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, but uh, yeah. So. We got into it last time, but so I don't know. Let's just pick a random spot and keep going. Um, so okay. one of the first things I thought that was kind of funny was, I, li- I mean, relatively, I like to think I'm a fan of uh, Clarence Kelly Johnson. Just, you know, oh, yeah. the little bit I do know as a biology major. But, you know, skunk works. He's f- fucking crazy. He used to drink. He was, He's famous, right? What? He's famous. Oh, dude, he... In, in Skunk Works by Ben Rich, they actually talk about how he was with some uh, Navy guys at some Air Force base, and they were just getting lit up one night till like two in the morning, drinking a bottle of White Horse. It's, I just remember that name, and he he bet him. He was like, he's like, when is the Navy gonna purchase a U two? And they're like, you know, like Clarence, like you fat old hog, like you know, like you, you can't take a U two off from like one of our carriers. And I, so literally at like two in the morning, he went out and like had some of the airmen like flip the lights on on the runway and they paced it out. And in my mind, I just have this like image of just like these drunk as fuck guys with a Kelly Johnson. They're just going foot to heel to toe, heel to toe. But they walked it out. <laughs> How long is it? <laughs> well, they walked it out and they walked out the uh, the length of whatever carriers these guys were operating. And uh, 
they found out that they could take a U-2 off from there, and that's what opened the door to like Navy sa Navy sales. So I thought that was kind of funny. But on that note, in your book, it talks about um, how when they were looking for a U, what would become the U-2, is uh, is is they had all these they had all these entry or these contract um, I guess bids between three different companies but then you said i don't know why i was trying to explain this to you i'm like wait you wrote the book is um is uh but then there was another bid from someone that an, an unsolicited bid and it was like the it wasn't a clarence but it was one of the guys from lockheed and and there yeah apparently there, there's some there's some i guess red hot guy named clarence and he said he can do it better but i just I don't know why that doesn't really have anything to do with the korean war we were going to talk about but that made me laugh out loud it was just like unsolicited and i was like as soon as it said unsolicited i was like i bet it's going to be clarence johnson and they're like it's from a small company called lockheed but back when it was like lockheed marietta i was like i knew it, it was just unsolicited <laughs> but it's kind of cool you could do that back in the day right you oh yeah just, you know oh yeah put out, i mean they still sort of do but there's like you know not independent companies that can pull off a multi-billion dollar project oh yeah know, these days oh yeah right but back then yeah they're like you know lockheed was i mean they had, they had obviously established themselves by that point but not in the you know, airborne isr kind of business lockheed or uh, martin or the jesus johnston was just a genius yeah you know design and they already had the engine that he knew could you know meet the requirements and yeah it's funny that if you carry that thread forward, we can talk about it some other time. But yeah. I think it's I think it's hilarious that once they get the airplane and it's you know it's established that it's going to kick ass, they go talk to Curtis LeMay, you know, and he's like, "Fuck that! I'll just use the B thirty six. I don't need your thing. Yeah, <laughs> get out of my office." Yes, dude. you know that 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 whole story of of them you know flying out to Omaha to Strategic Air Command to you know brief the cigar chump and Curtis yeah. LeMay. Yeah. You know, and, and he th he literally throws him out of his office. Yeah, he's just, know, he's just get the fuck out. He's just <laughs> yeah, basically right. Like I don't need that. I got the B thirty six, which you know, if you're familiar with that thing, that's just a the massive, monster. The know, monster six burning or four burning six burning. Yeah, yeah. You know, eventually they put some jet engines on on one side to make it a little bit faster. But yeah. that thing's just huge. Chugging along, taking pictures. You know, the RB thirty six B. Can uh, you? Yeah. Lemay's like, nah, I don't need the U two. I got this. Thing. I got whatever I want. Can you're gonna you're gonna hate me? Can you can you take out your AirPods? It's coming through muffled. It's it's yep. not you. It's my shitty connection. It's, nah, let me kill it. Here. No, you're fine. I apologize. It's there we go. Yeah, it's. I still okay. don't, no, you're good. I still don't have it down to a science. You'd think that it's for some people they put in AirPods and it comes through crystal clear, like right next to my ear. Other people yeah. put it in headphones and it sounds like they're talking through water. That's yeah, that's, that's, no that's, my, that's my that's my bad. But uh, yeah, no. Was it a uh, was it Lemay that was it Lemay that flew out to Skunk Works? I think, and I think didn't I, th I thought he flew out. And had them brief him on what was, I think, at the time the A12, but would come to be the SR71. And Ben Rich talks about it, and he says he comes out and he's almost in like the pure ego LeMay that we know and love. He almost like didn't want anyone to know he was there. <laughs> it was like he was like seeking help from people, but he like didn't want anyone to know. And he asked for a. Yeah, and he was like, so he's like, yeah, he's like, you know what? Give me, give me ten of them, 
Like, give me 10, like, for the Air Force instead of just the CIA, because LeMay fucking hated the CIA. And uh, apparently Ben Rich goes, would you like, because they were putting on air-to-air missiles, like, look down, shoot down, like, years before anyone else. And they also even had plans for a 2,000-pound kinetic bomb. So just, like, no, not even a JDAM, but just, I guess, I don't know, from 85,000 feet in Mach 3, that thing packed a punch. Yeah, dumb bomb, just drop it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try, try yeah. to do the math on that target. Yeah, I know. You know, land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, fuck, I guess if anyone could figure it out, it'd be Skunk Works, boys. But uh, they yeah. they go, they go. what about the bombers? And he goes, what about them? And he goes, would you like to order some of those? And apparently, LeMay turned and goes, we haven't ordered those yet? And it was just like, <laughs> just completely dumbfounded. But yeah. So, um, and you got to guide me on this, so you're the expert. So I'm just, just trying to throw out everything I remember. Um, yeah. I was going to say, the other thing I love is you got to love that just like American, well, it wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily Eisenhower. I wrote down the name. Was it Leghorn? But it was the idea that it's like, so we can't like, because um, they did the, what was the Korean War strategy for ISR? They said they would, you had, you said in your book, you'd have someone go and almost distract them. And then scream towards the border where the other ones took pictures. Yeah, they, there was there was a lot of that going on. They would. Uh, I mean, that was more Vietnam where they were hiding ISR, you know, in the in the in the F eighty six packages, and some of them would be ISR planes, and they kind of all go out. And then, mm-hmm. You know, the ones who weren't were kind of decoys, and they peel off to take the MIGs with them. Yeah, and then the other guys would go go up into China, and, you know, take pictures and stuff up there. Yeah. Just wild, wild west, man. It really was though. That's the that's the imagery I'm getting from it. It's just sort of like, fuck it, do it live, almost. Just like, yeah, right. All right, like you like, like go time, yeah. like right. It's, <laughs> but it's, but it's, it was a, uh, like, well, we can't like, they're gonna shoot us down, and we, but we still need to get this, so we're gonna build the U two, and then even then, after Francis Gary Powers. I love, again, even, like, the backdoor, like, briefings were, like, so we can't keep flying over them because they're going to shoot us down. And everyone was, you know, I concur. And it was, but we still need the ISR. And it was, I concur. So we're going to say we're going to stop doing it. But how much higher and faster do you think we can go? Like, you think we can do it? I think we can do it. Fuck it. Let's do it. And it was, <laughs> that's what birth is the SR-71. But, yeah, the the B-36 equipped with with cameras is... That's insane. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they, the the whole thing started. So, you know, in the uh, you're familiar with the you know the Ber- Berlin airlift, right? Yes. Yes. So they had all these corridors going into Berlin, and you had to stay in those corridors. Yes. If you flew out of them, you know, it would shoot you down or yeah. whatever. Yeah. That was the idea. Um, so they they're like, hey, we got you know we can take supplies into Berlin where the U.S. you know stuff is. So let's you know let's take some of those airplanes that are authorized yeah and put some cameras on them yeah right so we can so we can do some because you gotta remember you know back then they, were, they, they didn't know shit about germany i mean yeah you know they didn't have any good images of you know the, the stuff you know where the soviets would come in if there were going to be a war they you know they were pretty blind that's pre-corona you know despite having fought a war not too you know much before that and bombing the shit out of the place <laughs> You know, they still didn't really know, you know, they didn't have a good intel on where things were and you know, where they would need to attack and all that kind of stuff. So they, you know, that was they were crazy. trying to get anything they could, you know, any way yeah. they could. So, that, yeah. yeah, they started 
you know, putting cameras on all those transport aircraft, as many of them as they could, and the P-36 was one of them. That thing had a massive camera on it. Yeah. Was that the I one mean, that had the 20-foot? 20-foot thing. That ended up being on the C-97. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one yeah, that took pictures of New York. Had some other big, you know, big, huge cameras on it. They're just, <laughs> you know, trying to conceal them with, you yeah, know. Yeah, right. Yeah, literally. It's just, fuselage and, you know. Nope, it's just grain and flax. Don't look here. Yeah, Meanwhile, right. yeah, you got like a whole like Kodak team back there. Like, like, all right, do we got it? And yeah, he said took pictures from pictures of people in Central Park from 70 miles away. I yeah. guess that makes sense. Yeah, put it in the corridors flying into um, flying into yeah. Berlin. Now they could look as far into East Germany as they could to try to see you know, what the heck was out there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is because there's a great there's a great little like blip on um on the berlin airlift in in richard rhodes dark sun a book about the hydrogen bomb oddly enough there's just a chapter on the berlin airlift but yeah there's a yeah they talk about going in there and it was just like yeah i mean we never like we never left the planes because we were scared we were gonna get shot <laughs> and talking and they're like and they're like you know we come in really foggy days and there was an apartment right at the end of the runway and it was kind of the running joke who's going to take out like the top floors of the apartment they're like luckily no one ever did but they're like there are a couple times where you'd be coming in like just beneath the clouds and said you'd feel your butt kind of close up because you're like there's like the hvac system (laughs) just like banking right over like okay 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 but yeah yeah. you you know germany i don't know if you've ever been there germany in the winter time that's no fun i mean it's always cloudy like yes that's like that's like Maine and New Hampshire, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. fuck that. It's not ideal for for flying, and, you know. Yeah, I but I have to like when like when like listening to your book, I it, I have to like put myself back in that mindset because it was what was that operation where here's a plan to map the entire surface area of um of Eastern Europe and parts of the Soviet Union, and it's like oh yeah, this is prior to like Corona and Keyhole satellites. Like this, we yeah. didn't have this shit. Like, no. it's very, it's very easy for me to fall back into this. Like, literally growing up with with Google. I need to stop saying literally. Growing up with Google Earth on my phone. Like, yeah, yeah, we forget. You know, yeah, right? that that, that is yeah. Yeah, I remember the the so the Air Force you know drops these atomic bombs on Japan, right? And, and that becomes the strategy. I mean, that's how that's how you're going to win a war. Yeah. So they, you know, after after World War II's over, they you know they tell the Air Force, okay, so you know you you got it. Make sure you can bomb Russia and yeah. know, save us all. You know, figure it out. You guys got so it. Bad. Yeah. Sorry, there's a it's, it's F twenty two fly on Saturday day here on Langley. So that sounds be, awesome. There'll be F twenty two flying over, but, that don't, but yeah, I, you know, don't but the Air Force has no idea what to target. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and that's that's why they were trying to get you know. They're, yeah, they're interviewing dudes who left Russia. They're interviewing German scientists. They're just trying to get any targeting information they can because they have no idea what you know what's actually in Russia. No, in the Soviet Union. No, it is. Oh so, yeah, go save us! You know, nuke the hell out of the Russians. Yeah, but you know, have fun figuring out what to target. Right. So yeah. That's what's, I mean, that's really what prompts all of this imagery stuff. Yeah, we can also see how that leads into like stockpiling. What do we have to hit? Well, accuracy through volume, if we just hit everything. All right. Build 70,000 weapons. Go. It's, yeah. but yeah, it's, I remember watch. so I remember watching this video a couple of years ago, and it was this guy that's since, a uh, gentleman that's since passed away, 
but he uh, he was on B thirty sixes in Korea and and I guess pre and a- before and after. But uh, he's walking this he's walking this like interviewer through. I'll send you the video if I can find it. I can find it. I'll send it to you. But he's walking. He's just an old dude. And he's like walking through the B thirty six. It might have been the one that he used to be on, but it's at like some museum now. And he's telling stories about everything. And he's like, yeah, one time he's like, I remember like uh, they put cameras on it instead of like bombs. And LeMay told us that we were going on like our, our squadron, that we were going on like we we're going to be doing like a simulation near Russia or Soviet Union. He's like, and we get close to it. And then we're supposed to be going like west and we start going east. And he's like, and I asked the pilot, I was like, why are we going east? And he's like, we're not. And he's like, so I just nodded my head and was like, OK, we're not. And he yeah. goes. It was a little eerie because we turned off all the radio equipment. <laughs> and was, it was just like, he was like, so, you know, that's when I realized that we were going a couple hundred miles into the Soviet Union. But he's talking about it. And, you know, I'm like, okay, that's badass. He goes, yeah, so we were way up there. And the guy goes, how high up there? And he goes, we were, uh, we were at 63,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And that always stuck out to me. Probably not. Yeah. I'm not sure. Is that a, is that a fishtail? Is that a... Is that an old? Is that an old guy? Maybe remembering it a little. Not that it's yeah, not insane and not trying to like shit on him, but that's what I would expect. I don't think they could go that high. It's pretty high. He's probably up there, pretty high. Pretty up probably there, but yeah, probably not that high. I mean, like, how high was he? Was he Willie Nelson high, or was he sixty-three thousand feet? And it's right. yeah. I mean, yeah. There's no way that doesn't like you know skew your memory a bit. Like you know, you're in the Soviet Union on a hair trigger where nukes could go off. Probably skews your memory a bit, but. That, that that's just such like a badass imagery of like equipping this shit with cameras going in just so we can peek left and right it's insane it's yeah. absolutely insane yeah, we, we, they had no choice really yeah you know, wild west such a big country and you know everything all over the place they, they could you know they, they try you know you read the book you know they tried you know, as much as they could, because nobody actually wanted to fly over the Soviet Union. No. I mean, that was, you know, no. when Eisenhower finally, you know, I guess Truman did before that, but when they finally decide, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna fly over Kamchatka or we're mm-hmm. gonna you know, peek over whatever, you know, those are rough decisions for the president. He didn't want to do that at all because yeah. he knew, you know, all of them knew what would happen in you know, 1960 when powers get shut down. It all comes to, you know, it all comes to fruition. Here's what happens when you get shot down over somebody's country. Yeah. Right. You know, there had been shoot downs along the way, which you read about. Most of those were over water. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I'm out this to you. Yeah, you know, I can hear it. I can hear it perfect. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, so, it's, that's why they but, wanted it to be the CIA, right? Is so that yeah, it wouldn't then, be you know, military. That was. That was Eisenhower's thing, right? He's like, okay, we got the U-2. You know, you guys have told me it can't be shot down. This is 56. Yeah. Right, 1956. You guys have told me it can't be shot down, which it didn't in four years, right? Um, But I don't want this to be United States Air Force thing. Yeah. We need to have some kind of cover. Yeah. So they come up with the weather thing, you know, and all that. But yeah, you know, those presidents... They labored over that decision to, yeah. to actually send guys over, over yeah. Russia. Yeah. You know, we we were pretty sure that some dudes had been doing it before anyway, just because, you know, kind of like you were saying, right? 
Yeah. How could you how could you fly over the Arctic? You know. Yeah. Back in nineteen forty eight. Yeah, Admiral Byrd. No GPS. Yeah. You know, and not stray into somebody else's territory. Yeah. There's just no chance. Yeah. Again, I mean, but just think about that. They didn't have GPS in their airplanes either. <laughs> Let alone Google Maps, right? It's just they just had a little pack of amphetamines and like some water and like a piss tube. You know, they're navigating by stars or you know, and that, that you know, you know, you you read the, in '47 when they first started doing that, you know, that mapping of the Arctic. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was up there. <laughs> I mean, they had no idea. Okay, we're gonna, you know, we we feel like the, the Soviets probably are putting radars along the Arctic to watch for our bombers and stuff. We don't know. Yeah, they're just, they're just fine, you know, looking for anything. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's massive territory up there. Yeah, there's insane shit. It's from one of James Bamford's books, who he has several good books on the NSA, but he talks about these like these like hidden histories that like neither side could ever acknowledge, but they still happened. But one of them was like the Soviets had their listening posts way up there. The U S I believe we still have one and alert none of it, but we had them way up there to the point where like we would, and it sounds, this sounds like, it sounds like the old guy saying I was 63,000 feet up. It sounds like this story. But I mean, this is in this. This is in this like New York Times best-selling book. This guy was like, we had these NSA bases up there, and there were times where I mean, it sounds like some Indiana Jones shit, but where like it was getting warmer in the spring, and we were on like the outskirts of I guess like the ice caps. So you know the parts that would break off and then you know freeze up again as the seasons came and went. But they started to split apart. Where we had like our posts, like our listening posts. Oh wow! Yeah, like, and so like it was like, and it sounds it sounds cheesy. It sounds cheesy, but it was like these guys were like, I remember we were grabbing like all the magnetic tape and like throwing them across like the breaks in the ice, uh, and we finally got yeah. on an iceberg or something. Yeah, and we finally got to the biggest spot, and that's where the plane came could pick us up. But it's yeah. like meanwhile they would be watching like the Soviets do that too. And like neither side was gonna help each other, so you'd see like guys fall into the water, and it was like "fuck you" and like wow. just insane shit. But yeah, it's wow. yeah, it's it's yeah, it's insane. But yeah. yeah, because it's I mean, that's another thing that I remember when I first learned that maybe it was like high school. I remember reading about it, but I never thought about that. It was like oh no, if there's like a nuclear war, like everything's coming over the pole. Yeah, like it's it's just shortest distance. Like right, yeah. So yeah, it's our our view of maps, you know, is is skewed by looking at them flat. Yes. Right? Well, it's, the Earth is flat, Tyler, and uh, if oh, you don't yeah. agree with that, then I'm I'm I'll end this podcast right now. I forgot. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're good. Sorry. Hey, right. not everyone not everyone's as smart as uh, us flat earthers, yeah, but um, <laughs> but yeah. you know, we 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 look at straight lines on maps. And, yeah. You know, unless you unless you look at a globe, right? <laughs> and, you're never flying in straight lines. Like, yeah. Or, you know, everything's everything was and still would, right? Yeah. We we still have E fifty twos. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that's insane. They still have TU ninety five. I mean, they, those are you know, those are Cold War era bombers that still have kind of you know, Soviet equivalent. You think the same missions, right? Yeah. Go they, drop some nukes on the other guy. You know, in the event there's a, there's a triad, right? So. Yeah. 
missiles in the ground and bombers. Yeah. It's been that way for 60, 70 years. Yeah. I was just watching a thing the other day about the triad. I had like Casper Weinberger from uh, the Reagan administration, and he's talking about the triad. And uh, actually, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I got really into SDI over the weekend or oh, yeah. the last couple of days. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. SD, that, that's an insane thing for a, another episode, but a little upset when I'm, I looked and I was like, okay, well, I know Reagan's dead and I know I can't get him on the podcast. And I was like, maybe Casper Weinberger, maybe Casper Weinberger. Nope. He died in 2005. So, but General James Abramson, the guy that was in charge of SDI is still alive. Is he? Yeah. It's 87 years old and he's actually the chairman of some company he's still, I guess, active and just you know, yeah. So that's what I need to get. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So it's Let's talk about Korea a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. That so so think about you know think about where the you know we'll, we'll stick with the Air Force because that's what I know and love the best, right? Um, so think about where they are. We were just talking about what they were doing in 1948, right? So the Korean War starts in 1950. So, you know, World War II is over in 45. Air Force is told, you know, okay, we got we got atomic bombs now. That's how we're going to win wars, figure out how to destroy the Soviets, you know, if, if it comes to that. And, you know, people thought it was going to come to that. Mm-hmm. Now, it's easy for us to look back on it and say, ah, whatever. Yeah. You know, that was never really going to happen or, 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 you know. But those guys who lived it, they really thought that it was going to happen. Most people, yeah, isn't like the majority of adults thought that you know, they would die by a thermonuclear war? Yeah. You've seen the video. Yeah. You've seen, you know, they, they actually felt that that was a threat, yeah. you know, that it was going to happen. And it was. I mean, it was, yeah. know, they, <laughs> it was there. So so the Air Force, you know, 1947, when it, you know, finally breaks away from the Army to 1950, uh, you know, at least in the Airborne ISR business, which, you know, where I'll keep my expertise. Um, they're just trying to, to figure out what to target in Russia. Yeah. You know, what what can we what can we bomb with nukes if we if we have to go to war with Russia, right? Uh, and then this little problem starts in Korea, out of nowhere. You know, so you got a very nascent airborne SIGINT capability, and that, when I say nascent, I mean you know basically what they did in World War II. Yeah. Take a radio with you, get on the airplane, you know, listen, hear what you can hear. I mean, yeah. it developed a little bit, but it was still, you know, it still wasn't anywhere near what we what we ended up doing. Um, so Korean War starts, and the Air Force sucks. I mean, let's be yeah. fair. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and, and NSA, I mean, at, at the time, they were called the Armed Forces Security Agency. I think they were still AFSA back then. Yeah, they were. Um, you know, NSA's predecessor. They had... They had no Korean requirements, you know, they had no Korean linguists, they had no, you know, they just didn't have a Korean capability, no dictionaries, no, you know, nothing, right? So, you know, and that's a theme we kind of talked about in that, in that first podcast we did, is we're never ready, yeah. you know, yeah. things on the intel side, we're never actually ready for, you know, the conflict that we get. Yeah. So they're all focused on Soviet Union, which rightfully so at the time, you know, but when the Korean War starts, I got nothing. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a very small imagery capability in the Pacific Air Forces. 
Um, but as far as you know, airborne signal goes, and, and the ability to, to find targets on the ground, you know, to either attack or to or to you know tell bombers to go get it, or to tell the guys on the ground, you know, that's where the bad guys are, that kind of stuff. They are they are in terrible shape when the Korean War starts. So you know, the Air Force has to you know flex. It's got to you know Truman tells them, okay, this is the full effort. Let's go. Right, and then, and I think that story of how they how they go from you know what I just described, which was basically nothing, mm-hmm. to you know the end of the war where they're um, you know I wouldn't call it a robust capability, uh, but the end of the war where we have you know tons of of airborne ISR imagery airplanes in the in the business, you know they bring this guy in named Pop Poliska. You know, who was a World War II airborne imagery guy. Um, they bring him in. He's just a, he's a wizard. I mean, he's, you know, he's a great leader. He's an organizer. Um, you know, for a lot of, if there's any Air Force officers listening, you know, our, our big auditorium at Squadron Officer School, where we all go for our first, you know, kind of captain level professional military education, is named after Pop Polifka. It's Polifka Auditorium. Everybody goes to it. We call it the Big Blue Room, where everybody goes to sleep when you know people are, are lecturing. Um, but most people don't know, you know, what he was. He was yeah. an airborne imagery guy, you know, and he leads that that airborne imagery effort in Korea. Um, stands up, you know, all these squadrons, figures out how to how to get the you know, the requirements, the targeting requirements, the imagery requirements from the guys in the field and, and the various people out there that need to have imagery. And then develops this, you know, pretty good system of prioritization, figuring out what the most important targets are, you know, because just like today, there's always more requirements than there are capability. Sure. You know, and somebody's got to figure out, okay, what, what are the prioritizations of these targets? And, and Pop, you know, figures that out and, and comes up with a pretty good system that I would I would tell you it's pretty similar to what we do today, hmm. you know, where you rack and stack the requirements and figure out what you're going to image. And then he develops, you know, um, he develops a way to get the images to the customers, which, you know, we're talking 1951, so you're not sending them over the internet, yeah, right? You know, so he sets up a pretty good system of couriers and, you know, ways to get the images out to the, to the guys in the field and stuff, which, you know, is, it's, that's pretty remarkable. You know, if you think about what they start with in 1950 and what they end up with at the end, it's, you know, that's a pretty interesting story when it comes to the, the imagery capability that they develop. It's, it's, it, he's kind of like, he's like the ISR LeMay. Because if you ever read about like LeMay's, like, I mean, every, I mean, again, we know, you know, cigar chomping LeMay, get the fuck out of my office. But like, have you, have you ever read about like when LeMay took over SAC? He, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He goes in there and he's like, he is like none of our nothing was combat ready. Apparently, he went in and was like, "Let me see like your bombing records," and they're like, "Or your bombing numbers," and they're like, "Oh, we're perfect. We're hitting everything a hundred percent." Yeah. But he found out they were doing it from like fifteen hundred feet, not 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 thirty five thousand. Right. And it's like, and they were just doing like barges out in the ocean, where it's I mean everything else is blue, and then there's one black target, and it's like just hit that. Yeah, but, and it would. It would take off from, you know, let's just say Omaha and fly out to western Nebraska, hit a target, and come back. Yeah. Right? And LeMay's like, uh... That's not no, war. That's not you, war. You take off from Omaha, and you're going to go hit a target in Russia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're talking like a... 
18, 24-hour sortie. Yeah. Hell you yeah. Know? And they're like, oh, numbers are 100. And he was like, I don't believe you at all. And uh, so, yeah, they, that's when they started doing, like, yeah, all the faux, bo- faux bombings of American cities. And um, oh, yeah. did you, did, side note, did you know that apparently Baltimore, Baltimore and San Francisco are the most similar at the time to Soviet cities in terms of layout? Yeah. I guess there was a difference. I don't know what 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 that where that would stem from. It doesn't seem like it would be climate because I mean San Francisco, but like apparently the layouts of Baltimore and San Francisco were the most similar to USSR cities. Huh, interesting. And so, yeah, and so we we simulated bomb the fuck out of those. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Fun fact. But um, yeah, and. And but yeah, he goes in there, and apparently, yeah, he went through. Um, he just went through. I don't know what the correct terminology is. I guess base to base. He just from the bottom up and just worked through them all and turned it into this lean, mean fighting machine. And then went over and kind of, I guess, broke some international laws, but with the agreements of like France. But went in and put in all these. He want he had like rings of of bases to hold back if the Soviets decided to just bulldoze Europe. But he went in there and it was all not officially legal. So in pure LeMay fashion, he sends over his like good old boys, but they go over and they're just in civilian clothes. They get trains and stuff. And it's, so it's all these American soldiers, but they're just in like flannel and jeans. And they set up all these like secret air bases. Point of me saying that though, is he went through and took this, this almost non-existent capability and set up the supply lines and did it all really wasn't supposed to be doing it but he did it all from the ground up that's it you're mirroring it again with the isr though you go in and it's like what do we have and it's like i don't know we got some like codex like no when you go up and how do we get it to the customer same thing well it's not enough that you take the pictures because intelligence until you can get the best picture in the world and you can get it crisp and you can get it but it doesn't matter if it's sitting in the airplane if it's not live, it's yeah. you can't pause time. There's yeah, it's so it kind of sounds like a lesser. I mean, admittedly to me, a lesser known but equally important kind of Lemay. It mirrors that. It mirrors. I don't know if I'm getting my point across. It mirrors the same setup, picking it up from the bottom, building it through, building the backbone of it, and really bringing it up from the ground. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know those those opportunities are rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even through the history of the Air Force, there, there aren't that many times where these these things happen. Yeah, you know, kind of like you described, where it's you have nothing and you have a requirement now. It's usually because it's forced on you, right? Whether that's voluntold because you got to you know conduct nuclear war. Yeah, you no, know, or in this case, it's because you know we're part of the United Nations and we're going to support South Korea in this in the Korean War. Yeah, Pop Polivka, he's one of those guys, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell any historian who wants to hear it, you know, he, we have, you know, the Air Force is fascinated with certain figures, right? We love our Hap Arnolds and our Billy Mitchells and, you know, that kind of stuff. But there, there are guys who are, you know, underappreciated, like these guys, like Polivka is just one that comes to mind. You know, I, talk, I think I talked about Benny Foulet in the first one. You know, guys who were, 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 incredibly instrumental in the success of the Air Force. Remember, I mean, 1950, we're still, you know, the Air Force is two years old. Yeah. You know, right? You know, of course, we've been flying for a long time. Yeah, but that was Army Our Air Force. Way out, yeah. You know, as a service, 
it's not really established and there's still plenty of people especially in the army who want to just get rid of it and take it all back there's still people today that want to get rid of it and take it all back i was going to say for for anyone listening it's we were talking about earlier having to put ourselves in the mindset of back then air force is 47 so this is 50 i mean they're 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 basically like space force in a way i mean space force is what maybe a year not even not even yeah. it's it's pretty much this and it's branching out from a previous thing yeah. that's exactly yeah. what it is so it's we look at it now and we're like air force we're like the fucking air force you know but it's 2020 it's been 73 yeah. years right it's you know it's so sorry yeah, yeah i cut you off sorry yeah let, let it go we, we got it we're we're independent we're not going back to the army yeah 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 but, but the point is they're they're still trying to establish themselves and, <laughs> and not once and for all but to continue to build their credibility right so they were very successful in 1948 in the berlin airlift which is really the first you know united states air force operation mm. And that's LeMay, right? LeMay's, LeMay's in charge of safety, you know, mm-hmm. U.S. Air Forces in Europe during the Berlin Airlift. So that's kind of his, you know, there's a lot of guys who made it happen, but he was the boss, so he gets credit for that, right? You know, here two years later, now they're in, they're in a, a shooting war, and they got to figure out how to, you know, how to be a credible part of the joint fight. Yeah, you know, or, you know, they got Marines, they got Army, they got Navy. You know, it's a it's a combined effort, and and, the, and guys like Pop Kalifka make it. You know, give the Air Force the credibility that it, that it needs and, and makes it successful. You know, I think we just a lot of times we underappreciate these guys because they're just not household names. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a I have a list of of. Air Force guys who need biographies written on them. So that's, you know? that's that's what you need to do. Whether it's a whole book or just an article or you know that kind of stuff, but pops on the list. Yeah, there's, you know, if you go Google Pop Kalifka, you'll get a Wikipedia entry. You know, you'll get some references in books like mine yeah. or whatever. But the actual story of that guy, you know, and remember, he's a World War II hero. Yeah, he's an airborne guy in World War II. Takes you know tons of pictures, does a whole lot of stuff. You know, but we just there's not a you know there's not even an article that I'm aware of that, that lays out his life and what he actually did for the Air Force. So, sorry, soapbox kind of thing. No, no, no. I'd the never. Point is there's I'd there's literally never some heard guys of throughout you know the, the history, not just the Air Force. I'm sure every service has them. You know that, that needs some attention, and that's that's kind of why I focused on Kolitska with Korea. You know, in the book because I wanted I wanted more people to know about the story, yeah. especially Air Force officers who every one of us go sit in his auditorium. And take naps. Yeah. You know, how many of us actually thought, who the hell is this named after? Yeah. Because you know, is a weird name, right? Yeah. You know, it's not Smith Hall or something. Yeah. It's not, you know, not Roosevelt or Vanderbilt. You know, it's yeah. not Mitchell Hall or, you know, somebody thought this this guy was worthy enough to name, you know, the auditorium where every single Air Force officer goes to Squadron Officer School. They named their auditorium after him. And that's, that's important, but you can't find a good, yeah. you know, history of who he actually was. So, anyway. No, I mean, I was going to say it's not a soapbox thing because, again, someone with a biology major, but I'd like to think I know some stuff about the Air Force or the history. That, I had never even heard of his name before yet. Of course not. Yeah. So it's not even like I heard it, but I was like, ah, you know, I'm not that well versed on it. I had never heard the name before, man. So, no, it's it's absolutely that's that's I don't think that's a soapbox at all. Or it is a soapbox, but it's a fucking justified one. Yeah, it's, you know, it's good. So there's just guys that we need to, you know, even 
you know, there's there's history that's out there that, that hasn't been fully explored yet, really. And Polifka is one of those guys that we probably need to, you know, pull the string a little bit farther yeah. and, you know, get it out there so everybody knows the story. And, and well, it's also, it's, it's also what he did. I mean, think about the importance of ISR. It's, let's use an example, the, um, the bison bombers, where we thought there was the bomber gap, right? Because the Soviets flew the same ones over their city in, a, in pure Soviet magic and just, you know, oh, they have 10,000 of them. Um, and then we go and find out they don't, but that's the value of, 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 excuse me, of surveillance is, Oh, we see that they don't actually have these, and like you said in your book, it quote gives the Eisenhower administration some breathing room. It's well back to what you were saying earlier. Hey, Air Force, you guys, you're gonna bomb. This is how we ended a war, a bomb. So what you're gonna do is just gear up with a bombs and take it out of Soviet Union and what do we say, accuracy through volume. So to tie that all in, is well, Truman actually wrote in his journal that he believed that the Korean War were the first shots of World War Three. It was either he said that or his daughter said that, said that his dad said that, regardless. So to tie all of that shit in together is, I mean, this guy created the capability to see farther in, literally and figuratively, and to sort of offset that. You see the bison bombers, you realize, oh, there isn't a bomber gap. It's the same thing. If you, if you enhance their intelligence gathering capabilities, that, I mean, I think you can make the argument that that not postponed because it didn't happen, but prevented an all-out thermonuclear exchange. I know I'm kind of scatterbrained if I'm making that point, but... I don't know. I mean, quite quite possibly, right? I mean, you're... So, 1957, right? 56. I can't remember when the first U-2 flight over the Soviet Union was. I think it was 56. So it might have been 57, but um, you know, July 4th, 56. There, you know, there's a full-on arms race going on. Yeah. At that time, right? Was, you know, we, we had a few years after the war where, where the Soviets didn't have the bomb, right? And then they got it, and then everything started escalating. I don't know if you've watched some of the crazy videos from the, you know, like the hydrogen bomb oh, experiments oh, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Fuck yes, I if, if you haven't seen those, get on YouTube and look at some of the, you know, some of those big hydrogen bombs. Those ain't A bombs. <laughs> No, man. So, you know, so things are ratcheting up yeah. incredibly, right? And we're, you know, we're, the, the United States economy is doing great after the war. We all know that. But we're still spending, you know, way more money than, than guys like Eisenhower want to spend on national defense. Mm-hmm. He, he, despite the fact that he won the war and he's a retired four star general, he still understands that there's more to, you know, there's more to the economy than just defense and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the, putting the U-2 over the Soviet Union when they did, just like you said, let's go fly over these airfields and see what they actually have. Um, it slows everything down for us because we know that we're not losing. You know, we know that the, the Soviets aren't just outdistancing us, outpacing us with all these things. Um, it, it does, it buys them time. It gives them that strategic advantage, you know, to, to just kind of chill out, figure out how we're gonna move forward. And the, you know, the Soviets don't have that, yeah. right? You don't know any stories of Soviet ISR aircraft overflying Kansas, right? I was going right? to say that earlier. There's no, there's no SR, there's no Soviet SR seventy one yeah. stories, right? Yeah, they, they had ISR aircraft, but the, you know, the, the, the glory of the United States during that time, during the really the entire Cold War, that ability to put impunity to put an airborne ISR platform off of somebody's coast 
you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Nobody else could do that. I mean, that, that's the definition of big dick energy. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, you're right. There's no, there's no story. There's no, well, not no story. There's just no historical objective fa- uh, face, basis for uh, Soviet overflight. It's, no. yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't get overflight until the open skies treaty. Yeah. Yeah. And they're able to actually do it legally, right? Yeah. I mean, like satellites, of course. And yeah. Then, but, know, when, that, when that all started happening, but, you know, for, for an airborne ISR guy and a historian, the, you know, the, the ability of the United States to do that started in 1947, right? I mean, we, we start doing that in the Baltics, you know, in 1947, spying on, on the Soviet Union. We do it. We're able to do it today, and we're still the only country that can do it. Yeah, lots of countries have airborne ISR. Yeah, lots of them, right? But you know, you can take an RC-135, fly it out of Omaha right now, and be, you know, just about anywhere around the globe, and put, you know, an airborne ISR sensor off of somebody's coast. Yeah, tomorrow, yeah, tonight, yeah, you know, and, and there are. Very few countries who can do that. We can name them on one hand. Yeah. We can probably name them on two fingers, and the other one's an ally of ours who flies the same airplane. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it's just that ability gave us that leg up throughout all of the stuff, you know, all the things that we talk about in the book. You know, the ability of the United States to just, whether they flew, you know, from CONUS or whether they, you know, all the bases that we were talking about that you established, you know, your building halls, your cadenas, all those places. Or you can fly an airplane and be off somebody's coast. Yeah, you know, and that that is a unique capability that nobody else had. And sometimes, you know, uh, one of my old bosses, Joe Santucci, um, he wrote a you know he wrote a, a dissertation on the political use of airborne ISR. And you know, his whole thesis is oftentimes the the point of flying the airplane wasn't really even to gather intelligence. It was to make a political statement that we're watching uh, one and we can do this too. Uh, right. Okay. But we can, you know, we see what you're doing over there, whoever, you know, pick your, fill in your block for whatever country you want. Um, and we're going to fly an airplane over there to show you hmm. just to be the first one on scene fly off your clo- off your coast Libya you know and make you notice that we're paying attention and, uh, and of course we're of course we're collecting intelligence the whole time but his his thesis and you know I think he proves it pretty well is that, you know sometimes the intelligence gain isn't isn't priority number one hmm. it's more about making a political statement to whoever to whomever you're trying to you know trying to influence which I think is pretty powerful yeah it's like it's like those like shitty little bombs that they'd throw out of zeppelins in World War One, but it wasn't necessarily that these things did much. I'm sure they probably racked up a couple kills just by chance, but it was more so. Hey, you're in your hometown, far away from all of human history. The war has always been quote over there, and now we're above you. Yeah. It's the it's the psychological. There's yeah again maybe threw a couple grenades and got a couple unlucky fuckers, but like. The, it's the it's the psychological message like we're here yeah. like, think about the fear that the zeppelins over the uk in 1914 yeah fired. i mean yeah. they were freaking out panicking yeah. you know and that was exactly what it was yeah. you know, was the military gain really going to be that big yeah 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, the- sowing fear and doubt into the population that, you know, maybe my country can't take care of me and, you know, that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Yeah. It's, I was going to say the psychological impact of like LeMay's like uh, bombing raids over like the Japanese mainland. But then I realized I was going to say like, yeah, there's psychological impact to that, but it's also those weren't little hand grenades out of Zeppelins that was full on <laughs> fire bombings. So yeah, maybe not the same, but yeah, maybe not the same. Maybe yeah. not the, hey, psychological. No, it might have been the literal incineration of the city that did it it's a <laughs> it's always it's always fun to, to think about you know LeMay had firebombed you know over half some say 70% of Tokyo and burned it to the ground yeah and killed way more people than the, the atomic bombs oh yeah did. no LeMay was worried about being tried as a war criminal if we lost yeah yeah, yeah. it's always fun to, to wonder you know if, if we hadn't use the the bombs how much more firebombing was japan going to take well didn't i thought i thought the maybe this is just hearsay but didn't didn't we actually go through our entire like supply of incendiary bombs Uh, i don't know i think that was part of it was we didn't have any more like we could have, I mean, the American war effort. Like we, okay, this World War Two, we can make some stuff. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, like, we could, that wasn't the problem, man. It was we fucking, you know, what you want, man. We got it. We got it yesterday. Yeah. We were doing Amazon. We were doing like Amazon same day delivery back in the in World War Two. We we right, went with, with airplanes, tanks, and you know yeah. vehicles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, we we went Big Mac on it. We went billions yeah. and billions served. It's a. Uh, I think it was Lockheed Martin. One of their plants was building a fighter jet every hour and ten minutes. One of their plants, not the U.S. war effort. I said that in a, in a past episode. I said the U.S. was building a plane every hour and ten minutes. No, one plant. One of the plants yeah. was building an hour and ten minutes. But yeah, I, I can't remember. I, I won't try to quote you know quote all the stats, but. Just think about the amount of equipment that we just scrapped, you know, basically the day after the war ended. Oh, yeah. All the airplanes, the thousands and thousands of airplanes that we had, we yeah. just, you know, left them, gave them away. Yeah. You know, gave a lot to everything. the Soviets. And it was crazy. Yeah. Gave How much stuff we had. I mean, we had millions and millions of guys on active duty. You know, we had almost 4 million people in the Army Air Corps. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> You know, we're, here we are today. We have three hundred and seventy thousand or so, and it feels like we're a pretty, you know, big service, right? Yeah. Air Force is pretty big. We have you know, not even a tenth of what they had during the war. That's insane. Yeah, that's yeah. that's rise to the occasion shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it it is the fuck. What was I gonna say? You know, you were saying yeah. If we hadn't dropped the bombs, well, wasn't that one of the worries? Was they actually like? Uh, Leslie Groves actually wanted LeMay to, I don't think he had the, I guess, superior superiority to say that. I mean, he was in charge of the Manhattan Project, but he actually wanted or voiced his concerns that he wanted LeMay to hold off on some cities because they needed to see what an A-bomb would do to an untouched city. Because if you dropped yeah. it in an incinerated Tokyo, how do we know what really happened? Yeah, I've you heard know? that before. They wanted, they wanted to hit you know, pristine city so they could see what the effects of it really were. Yeah. And then they, you know, they picked a couple of them. Yeah. And the most fucked up thing is the people in those cities, they, there, there were reports of, they thought that they just weren't going to be touched for whatever reason. They thought they were being spared. And it's like, God damn, if there isn't more of like a fattening up the sacrificial lamb, 
Whew. But uh, actually, think of the gravity of that of that decision and the, the situation that they were in, right? I mean, for Truman to, to pull the trigger, so to speak, on that decision, you know, it, just the the weight the the senior decision makers and you know usually the president has to make sometimes, you know, just all the various factors and you know, you know. Truman wasn't wasn't really a you know he wasn't a warmonger by any stretch of the imagination mm-hmm. you know and for him for him to make that decision you had to you, you had to know that millions of American soldiers were going to die in the invasion of the mainland right I mean that was if, if history's right if every, you know if, all, if everything you read is right that was the you know that was the one thing that, that pushed him that way was. You know, we're firebombing the bejesus out of these guys. They're not giving up. You know, killed more of them with firebombs than any of these bombs will, will kill them with anyway. They're not giving up. The only thing left for us to do, you know, after we had taken Okinawa, was to invade the Japanese mainland. And the numbers are are in the million, right? Over a million casualties on the U.S. side. And who knows how many on the Japanese side. You know, so he's... He's thinking about all these, all the death that's going to happen. You know, the Japanese don't surrender yeah. for the most part. Yeah. You know, we saw that in Okinawa, guys just killing themselves, jumping off cliffs, yeah. Yeah. even the civilians. Civilians jumping off cliffs. Right. Yeah. You know, all, all the stuff that you saw, just, just think about the weight of that decision that he had to make. It's you insane. Know, factor in and all that kind of stuff. It's insane. I mean, I always argue, I mean, in... I always argue for the droppings of the A bombs. I have, I, I know a lot of people argue against it, and that's a great argument to make. It's um, but one thing I always point to is like, I I feel like I almost don't have a choice because my dad's dad was getting ready to go be part of the mainland invasion, so I very much wouldn't be here. Yeah. I mean, he uh, might have survived, but I mean, come on, eighteen. <laughs> Yeah, who knows? Go right. get him, kid. Here's some lucky strikes and uh, say a prayer. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. But I think, I, mean, I, I think you have to appreciate that Truman was also worried about the Japanese casualties. He know? was. He absolutely was. He, 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 knew, he knew there was going to be millions and millions of, of deaths on that side, not just you know the military on the U.S. military side. He knew there was going to just it was just going to be. Well, he said that leading up to the hydrogen bomb when they were arguing, do we need the hydrogen bomb? Or no, sorry, when we sent, didn't we send a bunch of nukes over to Korea, but Truman kept the cores in the United States because he didn't, he didn't want them to be armed. He didn't want some, he didn't want some guy trying to make a name for himself to drop a nuke, MacArthur. But he, but he said when asked about this, and there's like an exact quote where he said, you have to understand these aren't weapons of war. And they're like, how is this not a weapon of war? And he's like, these are weapons of extermination. He was like, you take out and another, you take out women and children. And another exact quote, not exact quote, but I know it's a quote from him, but I'm just not going to get it verbatim, is when asked why we didn't drop the third. Because there's, we dropped the first August 6th, two days ago, and then we dropped the second 75 years ago tomorrow. There's just so six and then you seven, eight, drop another on the ninth. We waited like four or five days before they surrendered. So logic would say, well, then why don't we wait two more days and drop a third? And apparently Truman said, I just couldn't stand the thought of all those kids. So like this wasn't 
this wasn't LeMay. Like, you know, Le, LeMay, for better or worse, probably wanted it. It's And that's that's a bold statement. But, I mean, JFK said, you don't want LeMay making the decisions, but you want LeMay leading the, you want LeMay leading the charge. Yeah. Truman was very much, he, being a World War One veteran, but he was very much like, this is, you, you got to understand what's going to happen. This wasn't yeah. a, you know, this yeah. wasn't a raw, raw, burn them all. This was, you got shitty yeah. outcome one, shitty outcome two. Yeah. Which pile of shit do you want to eat? Yeah, and I think even, even LeMay, LeMay is executing the mission that he was given. Yes. Right. Yes, it's very easy for me to have the luxury to say LeMay is a warmonger. Yeah, to incredible efficiency. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he, he was very good at what he, yeah. what he put in place. I, I love LeMay. I don't want to, like, misconstrue that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, but yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, and if, I mean, this argument, you could almost, you know, roll your eyes at it. But I mean, really, it wasn't just save the uh, projected one million casualties. I mean, yeah, how many Japanese were going to die? Like, how many were going to die? They were training kids to put bombs on their chest and roll under tanks. Yeah. They were handing out sharpened bamboo sticks once they didn't have any more guns. They were like, apparently they were rolling out like 1800s cannons. They were going home alone on this. They were, you know. Yeah, it it was going to be brutal. And, you know, it it is worth noting that another factor was we needed to show the Soviets that we had anything to Yeah, that's, you can't, yeah, yeah, you can't pretend that wasn't part of it. That was part of it. That was. There is no doubt that. that, Yeah. Because by this time, they know, you know, the war's over, we're going to win. One way or another, we're going to win. We already beat, you know. Europe war was over. We already know that the Soviets are going to be our adversary at this point. I mean, it's very clear to everybody. Yeah, there is there is no doubt that dropping those two bombs was part of that messaging campaign to those guys. It was, it was absolutely a flex. Yeah, it was one hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you cool with doing like uh, like five more minutes? Yeah. yeah, I can go as long as you want. I just don't want to keep you. <laughs> Yeah, let's do five more minutes. Gucci. Um, but, yeah, dude, it's... It's definitely weird to think about because what would have happened if we hadn't dropped them? Would we have just burned through that whole... Was was dropping them... Was it that there was a threshold that had to have been hit? And let's just say it's 300,000 deaths and maybe after 300,000 more they weren't they were going to stop? Or was it the the style of the death? And it's, I mean, the the semi the the temporary creation of a star over a city. Like, like, could we have gone through and killed ten million with bullets, and they wouldn't have surrendered? Versus three hundred thousand with uh, the heat of a sun. Yeah, just to snap your fingers. Yeah, and I I think we. because these are familiar to us, right? You got to put yourself back in their time when you know there wasn't an A bomb yeah, before August sixth, right? Nineteen forty-five. Yeah. So you know, can you imagine the feeling and the shock of that happening? Yeah. Just out of nowhere. That's you know, true. Yeah. This thing exploded in the air and killed three hundred thousand people and wiped out our entire city. So, yeah. 
it's just 500 mile an hour shockwave. We've been conditioned, right? Yeah. These bombs have been part of our entire lives and, you know, you know our parents' lives and whatever. It's, yeah. you know, it's just normal. I can get on YouTube right now. Like I told you, yeah. hey, let's go watch the Soviets yeah. demonstrate an H-bomb, yeah. you know, Joe exploding Warren. in the atmosphere. Yeah, Castle Bravo, right? Teapot. You can watch them yeah, all. Yeah, no big deal. We're used to it. But imagine being a guy in 1945, you know, <laughs> and this thing happens. Yeah. Even I, the most ardent supporter of the emperor. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's uh, this is different. This is this is not you know a hundred B twenty nines flying over yeah. dropping fire on us. Yeah. I can I can feel that. That's you know it's in a bomb. It's fire. Yeah, okay, it's terrible. Yeah. But it's tangible, right? You yeah. know what that is. Yeah. What was this? Yeah this this turned this vaporized people. Yeah. This burned their shadows onto walls. Right. This didn't start a fire, you know, that I could start if I, you know, am not cautious with my cigarette or something. Yeah. This. You know, th- this is. This is the hand of God. Yeah. I mean, this is what was the epicenter, hypocenter, five thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Or that's the air, not the blast itself. The blast itself is hotter than the sun, but. Yeah, and that, that's what you know. That's my. It was so different. You know that it, that it hadn't changed the calculus of the Japanese thing. Yeah, people jumping in the river to to cool their burns, but the river was boiling. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you got to think about the, there's the shock and awe. That is, I mean, what else do you use to end World War Two? I mean, if we had, if World War Two had was occurring. At a certain point, almost like you and I were saying, where you were just saying, you know, we're conditioned for the nuke. At some point, you almost got to imagine there's some sort of conditioning in World War II. It's just understood that everyone's dying, whether it's sure. yeah, Holocaust sure. or D-Day or whatever. Yeah. And then if you it's just part of it. About, you know, if you think about the, you know, just the simple fact that the Japanese and Chinese had already been at war for a decade almost before oh, yeah. World War II yeah. rape actually of, started. Yeah. Rape of Nanking. The amount of death and mayhem that, that, you know, that, that they had seen, it's just another thing, right? Yeah. It's just more people dying. Yeah. It's terrible to think about it that, that way, but it is. I mean, you know, you're, you're talking 40, 50 million people died in World War II. Yeah. When you factor in all the civilians and everything. Yeah. I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, I know it's up in those, those I think things. The, I think the upper estimate... Death, you know, death is just a thing. Yeah. It's terrible, but it is, right? Well, it's also, how much bombing can you take? Yeah. How much invasion can you take? You can probably take it all. Yeah. Until there's nothing left to fight with. I mean, think about the kamikazes. They they would... These guys were heroes, though. They would go through this, like, training. They would get their names in the paper. They got these weird haircuts where they almost looked like monks. I don't know what the purpose of that was. But they got, like, robes. They got all the, all the prettiest geisha women. So they got all the comfort women. They were heroes, and they went off, and, you know, their planes didn't have landing gear. They had explosives. They were locked in, no parachute. I mean, this is – and I, I mean, I get – I mean, most of these guys are 16 to 20 years old. That's a fact I found out yesterday. I did not know that. But, I mean, yeah. you got to think. It's. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can get it. Your country's being, you know, destroyed by an, what you perceive to be an aggressor, the enemy, the evil, you know, the evil Americans, and you're going to defend your homeland, which has been – there for thousands of years of course you're going to get jacked up and go you know protect your nation fly your colors so you're fighting that mentality though like yeah. how do you counteract that mentality 
I think just think about the island hopping campaign with all the Japanese guys in the tunnels yeah. and the caves, and they had to burn them out. To, yeah. To get, you know, to end it. Yeah, and when you're finished, that was going to happen, yeah. right? Okinawa was terrible. If you if you ever read about the Battle oh. of Okinawa, spend oh. some time. Yeah, and Okinawa. Just watch a documentary about it or something. I mean, it is awful. Pelo, that, that was a microcosm of what you know mainland Japan was going to be. Yeah, I mean, yes. Iwo Jima, Pelo, Pelo. I can never say it. Pela Iu, Pela Liu. Yeah. That one was insane. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, we had been doing that yeah. you know, every few months having to do that stuff. And yeah. so you, there's, there's no way you could ever believe that they were just going to surrender. No, you know, not at no all. No matter how devastating the air attacks were. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, we'll wrap this bitch up, but uh, I mean, I think it serves to point even now, even after so let's just let's wind the clocks back 75 years from right now so now we're two days after the first a ball so we dropped this thing that oh my god what is this rivers are boiling they still haven't surrendered it's been 48 hours so well, let's find out if they have more than one yeah yeah maybe maybe they only have one maybe they're uh yeah maybe they played their hand so they were still gonna fight us right yeah so tomorrow Hiroshima. Boom. They're still gonna fight us. Yeah. Second one. Okay. Now from our mindset we're like, we just got him with two. And from their mindset, they're like, okay, they have more than one. So we know that. But now a couple of dates are still going by. Now you're at August tenth, eleventh, twelfth. I mean, I think the shock has to be equal from not only from the Japanese side, what are the, what are these weapons? Can you imagine the American side? It's like I can only imagine them like looking at each other like are they still going? Yeah. I mean that's gotta be some like rocky shit. You know? It's about how hard you can get hit and keep going. It's like So I don't know how yet I just After two they still didn't like that's probably the most insane fact of World War Two is after two they still held out for a couple days. Yeah, well, because you had all of the hardcore, you know, army guys wanting to fight. They, and they're advising the emperor that let's we're going to fight until there's none of us left. No some of them what, actually stormed the palace because they thought the emperor no was what, getting what weak. You, you know, yeah, no matter what weapon these guys come up with, we're going to fight till the very, very end, right? And, you know, it takes the emperor just saying, "I'm I'm ordained by God. I'm making this decision." Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think it was. We're, we're surrendering. Yeah, I think it was Richard Rhodes that said it. It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you make a a nation take a knee that believes that their leader is a god? Well, what you do is you show them the power of God. How else do you do That's it? That's what it takes, right? Yeah, you say you're from God. All right, like crack your knuckles. Here's the power of God. Yeah. God damn, Colonel Tyler Morton, PhD. Thank you for doing this one. Let's definitely do another one. We will. Fuck yeah. Choose the yeah. Choose the next. I'll brush up on it, and uh, hopefully next time I I won't be sick. And um, admittedly, my head is in fog right now. But uh, we talked about Korea a little bit. <laughs> we touched on it. Hey man, accuracy through volume. You. I do want to spend an hour talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis at some point. Fuck yes. No, let's let's do, let's do gonna, that next. I'm gonna write a an article I'm trying to line it up with the anniversary so probably publish it in 22 it's all about 
manned airborne reconnaissance in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's so, you know, yeah. Everybody knows about the U two, right? But there was so much, so much more going on with you know all kinds of stuff that needs to be written about, yeah. put out there in one one nice piece. So. Uh, spend an hour talking with you through some of that will help me kind of formulate my ideas. Well, I would love to find out what's interesting to you and stuff like that. I would love so. to do a Cuban Missile Crisis episode. That would, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would, be, yeah. I was gonna say it's kind of like the fire bombings, though. You gotta just generally get close, and you kind of get it. I think, I think that's what you're figuring out about this podcast. You gotta, you gotta choose a topic, and uh, <laughs> you'll kind of get near it. It's uh, it's fun. Man. Yeah, it's I like it. I like it. Yeah, it's conversation. Fuck yeah, man! I appreciate it, and thank you for coming on. And uh, I'll text you after this. Let's definitely set up a Cuban Missile Crisis episode. All right, brother. All right, man. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Don't die from COVID. Man, I'm gonna try not to. All right, all right, man. <laughs> Take care. Peace. You too, buddy. Out. <laughs>